Welcome to Very Honored Pratter BT's Esoteric Nerd Podcast, Episode 14, in which I interview Benabel Wen, author of Holistic Tarot. But first, I wanted to revisit a concept that we brought up in Episodes 6 and 7, perhaps even make it a segment and we'll give it an appropriate name. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So, congratulations are in order. You, whoever's listening to this, you've already graduated beyond Malkut and Bathtov and Isod and Shin and Resh and, and Hode and uh, you've been through the path of Kof and uh, now you're approaching the entrance the path of Zadi. The twenty-eighth path of the Sefer Yetzirah, which answereth unto the lettered Zadi, is called the natural intelligence, because through it is consummated and perfected the nature of every existing being under the orb of the sun. It is therefore the reflection of the airy sign of Aquarius, the water-bearer, unto which is attributed the countenance of man, the atom who restored the world. The large star in the center of the heavens has seven principal and fourteen secondary rays, and this represents the heptad multiplied by the triad. This yields twenty-one, the number of the divine name Eheye which, as you already know, is attached to Keter. In the Egyptian sense, it is Sirius, the dog star, the star of Isis Sothis. Around it are the stars of the seven planets, each with its sevenfold counterchanged operation. The nude female figure with the star of the heptagram on her brow is the synthesis of Isis, Nephes, and Athor. She also represents the planet Venus, through whose sphere the influence of Chesed descends. She is Ima, Bina, Tebuna, the great supernal mother, Ima Elohim, pouring upon the earth the waters of creation, which unite and form a river at her feet, the river going forth from the supernal Eden which floweth and faileth not. Note well that in this key she is completely unveiled, while in the twenty-first key she was only partially so. The two urns contain influences from Chokmah and Binah. On the right springs the tree of life, and on the left the tree of knowledge of good and evil, whereon the bird of Hermes alights. Therefore does this key represent the restored world after the formless and the void and the darkness, the new Adam, the countenance of man which falls in the sign of Aquarius, and therefore doth the astronomical ripple of this sign represent, as it were, waves of water, the ripples of that water going forth out of Eden, but therefore also is justly attributed to air and not unto water, because it is the firmament dividing and containing 
the water. Our guest tonight is the author of Holistic Tarot, an integrative approach to using tarot for personal growth. She is a corporate attorney practicing law in California and New York, who also happens to be a practitioner of various metaphysical arts. She studies tarot, feng shui, I Ching, numerology, and both Chinese and Hellenistic astrology. Let's get to that interview, shall we? Greetings, Soar. Welcome to the Esoterra Nerd Podcast. Thank you for having me, Farah. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Would you mind telling me a little bit about your name? It's actually based on my Chinese name. It's a pseudonym, and so I wanted to protect the uh, day job that I have and not have my professional life intermingle too much with my writings and my beliefs, mm -hmm. right? And so I decided to actually be as authentic as possible, and I went with the name I should have had. So the my actual legal last name is a complete, you know, it's it was messed up by uh, USCIS, so it's not actually my real, it should, it's not the real transcription of my Chinese last name. Mm -hmm. So when would be the correct one? And then Benabel is based on my Chinese name. The two characters that make up my name is Benevolent and Bells. So oh. instead of calling myself Benevolent Bells, which just sounds idiotic, I combined it and turned it into Benabel, which is less idiotic, I think. <laughs> well, I like my uh, my name, Fredder BT, is uh, Fredder Ben Tiferet, which is son of beauty, nice. which I thought sounded idiotic. <laughs> I like son of beauty. That's cool. But then it turned out beauty, beauty was the English translation of Tiferet, which has a lot more depth of meaning than the English word beauty does. <laughs> yes, yes. I just was very interested. In my life, I'm moving toward a more Eastern path of yoga and meditation, uh, but I have the training of the Western esoterica and the tarot and all of that. You know, what's interesting is I find, I know a lot of people get uncomfortable when, when people make comparisons between the Eastern and Western esoteric traditions, mm -hmm. but I don't know. It's a very natural pattern for me to draw connections between the two. I don't know if that's just because of the way my, my mind works or what, but I know some people don't really like that or, or at least are oh, sensitive right. to that. Well, but I think it's really... kind of silly and limited. Like they're thinking from the point of view of a British colonialist getting in a boat and landing in China and going, wow, this is totally different and oh. ignoring all the history where there was interaction between East and West uh -huh. and the fact that it's sort of arbitrary calling one thing East and one thing West when, you know, ideas flow back and forth. The statue makers in Greece were making statues of Buddha after Alexander conquered India. Mm -hmm. And then those ideas from, you know, early Buddhism were coming back in the form of uh, Greek philosophy. So, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to really draw a solid line. Yeah. And you, I mean, you see a lot of Eastern tradition already in 19th century esoterica, for example, the thought that just to be, just to bring it back to tarot, you know, mm -hmm. So you really already see it. And also even in Pamela Coleman Smith's art style, her style is very much inspired by Japanese uh, woodblock printing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's not quite as separated as people tend to like to think of it as. I remember a, a particular Hindu symbol in uh, the chariot card that she drew. Oh, it the was, lingam. 
Is that what that is? The masculine feminine? Yes, 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 yes. That it. Uh Yeah, that's very Eastern. Right, right. Exactly. So do you have any insights about the little statue that lawyers have on their desk and its relationship with the justice card? Which statue do we have? I don't even know. (laughs) Maybe it's old fashioned these days. It's um, because in in the justice card in book T, they had the um, blind justice with the sword. And it was a blue-handled sword. Uh-huh. And she stands between the pillars. But the sword's upright. And she's got the blindfold on. But the way that in the, the classic statue that you usually see, or you imagine, being on the desk of lawyers, or prosecuting attorneys maybe, uh-huh. uh, is, is with the sword pointed downward like she's in that wrathful mode. I believe it's Themis, the, the, arch- the, the, the titan. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't know why it would be pointed downward because I when I pay, so the funny thing is when I picture it in my mind, I actually picture it, picture it upward. Yeah, I, so, I think that's correct. That's yeah. when she's she's ready to administer justice. But I think the uh, the depiction on the desk is she's in wrath mode, like she's she's found that it's not just, and so she's attacking, and that's oh, the archetype oh, they're okay. keying into. I've never heard that. You have already piqued my interest. I need to go do some research right now. Because I, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen it. Or well, listen, I can't say that. I just didn't pay attention, to be quite honest. Yeah. So next time, I'm just going to pay more attention to whether or not the sword is pointed. Because I don't think I've seen it pointed downward. Again, like, it's just I haven't paid attention. Sure, sure. Well, I think a lot of the symbolism that worked its way into the tarot also worked its way into the rest of Western civilization, mm-hmm. you know, by way of the maybe the Masons and uh, from the Greeks and that kind of thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, there was so much, um, so many of the people who were in politi- who had political power were part of the Freemasons and other, other of these esoteric societies. So yeah, they they knew about tarot. And they exactly. About- they just didn't openly admit it. Right. So yeah, there was that uh, the Sefer Yetzirah. The- yeah, the uh, um, Kabbalistic text, right? Mm-hmm. The book of foundation that uh, connects the Hebrew letters with the uh, heavens of Asaya or the planets, the zodiac right. and the elements. And they're all connected to, for example, in card counting, just this one very basic technique. Mm-hmm. Um, the numerical attributions for all of the numbers come from that. So, yeah. And card counting? Yeah, card, uh, card counting from t- the tarot perspective. That's, for example, used in the opening of the key and other traditional techniques where, you know, once the once you set down a card, depending on what, you know, whatever context you were, you know, performing the operation at, then you have to count the cards to figure out which cards in the deck to select for your reading. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you put down a, uh, a, a page, for example, I believe that was the 11. And then if you put down, oh, wow. you know, like, uh, if you put down one of the planetary cards, you know, depending on which this card. This sounds you put, familiar. I'm supposed to up. know this. <laughs> <laughs> this is the five-part tarot spread you're talking right. about. You know, there's just so much. It's not really we have to support. I mean, there's so much information out there. Yeah. It's kind of no, ridiculous. I, to one of my students like, busted me. I was, I was teaching a class, and this girl, Stephanie, was I was teaching her tarot, and she She's like, okay, well, what about this one? And then she starts teaching me the the version I was supposed to know. <laughs> and I was teaching her the basic stuff. And she's like, yeah, you know, I've already read everything that's published. Do you have anything to teach me? <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> I guess not. 
like, I'd be like, I'd be like, yeah, okay, you know, let me sit down and take my notebook out. Why don't you get up on the front lectern? And- exactly, exactly. And I think that's important. That's that's where I'm coming from with my podcast. Is I I'm tired of being the teacher, and I really feel ignorant. I feel like most of the people that I admire, you know, I mean, I admire people that are that are more informed, more intelligent, more thoughtful uh, than myself. And so that's I I think we all have a lot to, to learn and we all have a lot to teach and I think that sharing of knowledge is a natural function of brain matter you know yeah. like like there's a it, the, the brain matter in my brain feels the gap between my brain and your brain and it wants to fill that gap through communication because we're all one I think you that's know. actually the most important way for teaching to happen is when it's more collaborative and I right. think you know I mean unless you're Beginners is a different story. I think anyone beyond the beginner level, I do prefer a more collaborative, you know, situation or relationship. So yeah, coming together and sharing knowledge. Yeah, so not one. So there isn't like a power, power hierarchy or structure between two individuals. That's never been comfortable with me, which is weird because Asians are all about hierarchies. (laughs) Well, so are white people. (laughs) I guess it's just a people thing then. Yeah, people like hierarchies. Yeah, it's an easy way to organize people in the past, you know, and I think that with communication and intelligence and literacy and the sort of things that used to be only reserved for the nobility and, you know, the kings or whatever that now is starting to filter down to the rest of us, at least in in the first world, you know, it it becomes increasingly more difficult to, to maintain that old structure. They have to make it so convoluted and bureaucratic, like, for example, you know, the government as it is and its relationship with uh, the corporate world and the military and, and just the interconnectedness of it all. It's just, right. oh, wow, it's so much more convoluted than just a king, you know, giving out orders. That that used to work, but uh-huh. we've become too sophisticated for that. We need to be very com- duped in a much more complicated way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Did you were you always interested in I Ching and tarot, or did you start at a certain age? Um, well, the I Ching, I I didn't learn from my father, but I grew up seeing him, you know, in that context. And so I remember when I was eight or nine years old, one of the first books I got was the I Ching Book of Changes, and it was this text where on one side was the Chinese, and on the right side it was the English. Mm-hmm. Now, ob- obviously, at that age, it made no sense to me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even touch the book until many, many years later. Right. But I mean, I think even not knowing or understanding anything about the book, just having it present really Around. does sort of, yeah, exactly. It, it does start to adjust your own way of thinking and your own mm. perspectives, you know? And you see him doing it. So you see the expression on his face. You feel the vibe that he's right. putting into it. Yeah, and actually what's funny is he took a very he's he's a scholar. He's definitely an erudite type. He's very very intelligent. He's not that much into the woo from a spiritual or folksy perspective which which my mom would be in too. And mm-hmm. so I really um I really tried to model my own path after what I saw him do, which is take a more academic approach, really be rational about the esoteric, you know. And it's only now that I think I can, I come back a little bit more full circle and can learn to appreciate my mother's approach a little bit better. Hmm. So, but yeah, so because of that, um I think I I shied away from eastern esotericism for a long time because first of all, in the eastern world, it's not really esoteric. 
I don't know how to explain that, but it's so embedded into everyday culture. Like the ideas of the yeah. idea of spell crafting, the idea of you know feng shui, geomancy. These things are so much a part of everyday mundane life. Exoteric, not, right? It's not really esoteric, and so yeah. you know. And there's also a very strong element of or insinuation of superstition that comes with it. Yeah. So it was something I really shied away from, and then when I found tarot. I discovered tarot within the Western context, and within the Western context, it's definitely considered esoteric as compared to the mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, just based on the context I found tarot in, I was a lot more interested in that, and so that became my introduction to the occult world. Right. Yeah. And then from there, you um, uh, revisited I Ching? What's funny is the white people, to put it bluntly, were into I Ching. And I was like, why are you into this? I just didn't understand, like, why? It's just not interesting. Well, to there's me. a DNA connection that, I mean, because having, I grew, my dad taught me the Rider Waite deck when I was seven years old. Wow. And I started, I preferred the Celtic tarot by the time I was 14 and reading at parties. Oh. And by the time I was 17, I refused to do a tarot reading ever for anyone ever again. Oh, wow. And um, then I joined, well, actually, no, I joined the Golden Dawn when I was 16. And we had to do tarot readings before mm -hmm. we did any kind of uh, practical magic. Because mm -hmm. we had to find out the karmic ramifications of what we were about to do. Mm -hmm. And there was a particular spread we were supposed to use. And instead of Rider Waite, we were using Book T, which was what Arthur Edward Waite was trained on. Mm -hmm. But when he and Pamela Coleman Smith composed their deck, they used an older version of the deck and incorporated some of the Golden Dawn symbolism into it and also brought in some Eastern and other symbolisms. So basically, I got very, very, very saturated with... Because uh, it's a big, big system. Uh, you know, the, the Sefer Yetzera, there's the, the Lurian tree, there's the, there's the Kircher tree, the guy, the Jesuit in the 1600s who decided that the Tree of Life should look like it does in the West, and uh, then the tarot was based on that. And so you get to find, you eventually run into the edges. You find the edges of, you, you realize that it's not actually, like you know how in nature you can look at a leaf and explore it forever, and uh, and it's just infinity within infinity. But when you look at tarot, you, you realize eventually that it's human. <laughs> because it ends. You know, it's like a book that has an end, and you're like, oh, that's it? And uh, But where with I Ching, it, it, for one thing, it's unknown. It's something I don't know about yet huh. and 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 when you know it it resonates with the physical study of the way that dna behaves in a way that's fascinating so that number 64 becomes very fascinating and it doesn't exist as much in the west in the western system right you know what's interesting to me is so a lot of the books that I learned tarot on, you know, they they were from, uh, you know, they were from magicians, and so they would talk about how tarot is, how, you know, basically when they're talking about the theory of how tarot works, right? Mm -hmm. They'll say things like it's through um, spiritual intervention, or there's uh, there's some sort of other other deity energy, or some sort of other energy. Guru. Right. The guardian of the sphinx of the tarot or something. Exactly. I mean, everybody will have, every tradition will have a different expression for that. But basically, we're talking about a, you know, sort of an entity, right? Mm -hmm. a, a supernatural. I don't like using the word supernatural, but I'll just use that because I'm lazy for now, okay? Mm -hmm. Supernatural entity that's affecting the cards and communing with us. And so we are using the symbolism of the cards to basically interpret the messages from this divine, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting is so in tarot, I've never really bought into that idea just when I was right. learning, okay? I felt more like it had something to do with psychology. And that's interesting because in the I Ching, 
I felt the opposite. When I was um, divining with I Ching, I felt very strongly that they were messages from the divine. Mm. And so I just, I've never been able to really self-analyze why I feel that way. But I find that it's interesting that just personally I make that distinction. That is interesting. I, I mean, there must be a psychological reason for that in my subconscious, but I'll figure it out at some point. But yeah, so I've always found that interesting that in I Ching, I felt very like, no, of course, no, duh, this is exactly why it works, right? Right. But I couldn't buy into that for the tarot. I don't know why. Every once in a while, you get one that you're like, whoa, you're blowing my mind right now, where you sit yeah. down and they tell you, oh, you're, you're here because of that guy that's dating so-and-so, and you're like, oh, okay, you're the real thing. Right. And that, but they, they don't even need a tarot deck. They, they, you know, usually yeah. they're just sort of playing with the tarot deck and just throwing random cards out willy-nilly while they talk, you know. Mm -hmm. They they used to tell me I was pretty good, which was funny because, like, I, I have that same perspective where... Um, you know, when people say, isn't it all just general enough that you start talking down a certain line and, and you judge by someone's body language, whether it's true? And I was like, well, maybe. But if, you know, if that's the case, then it's kind of subconscious on my level. Like, yeah. like the line between intuition and just, uh, well, I guess intuition is the word, but it's, it's, it might as well be rational. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh. It's like when it's like when you look at someone's face and you can read the expression and there's no rational way you to write down how you knew what the expression on their face was because there's a part of the brain that's designed to I guess intuit the uh, the, the the mood based on the expression of the face and so so maybe that's a factor in my reading and maybe that's why I'm good I don't know I don't deny that possibility. I think there's more to it than that. I, I mean, maybe at some point when I was more, not even more skeptical, but when I didn't have enough research, when I didn't have enough data, I might have bought into that idea. Mm -hmm. But there's just too many coincidences when you encounter a powerful reader that I just don't think that that's all it is. Right. You know, so. there's the other idea that they subconsciously they know where all the cards are. And so when they're shuffling, mm -hmm. they all end up in the right place. When I, usually what I, my approach to tarot reading is I, I don't ask, I don't have them give me the question yet. So when they start, and a lot of times I do these readings online where I don't see the person, I have no idea what they look like. I don't even know what part of the world they're, they're coming from usually. Mm -hmm. And so I start with um, my personal adaptation of the first operation where you cut the deck into the four piles, IHVH, and then you, um, based on where the signifier or the significator uh, appears in, I, mm -hmm. I kind of tell, I tell them that Then you know that it's that kind of reading, fire, right, water, right. So that this is So the subject matter that you want to talk about is this, and then I start looking at some of the cards. This is where I deviate from the traditions, right, from right. what's written in the text. I start looking at cards in that pile, and, you know, just from what comes up, I can start talking about, you know, the nature of the question. And I found eerily that it's very very on point and i'm not yeah. saying it's me i actually think it's the cards or it's the process that i learned but it's weird how tarot can do that yeah well i mean i'm when i'm speaking from my rational you know i basically my maternal grandfather was very rational and he didn't buy any of it mm -hmm. and then my dad was totally you know he would say oh yeah well in a past life you and i da 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 da, da. Mm -hmm. he was just completely matter of fact about you know and he was the one who taught me tarot and he was actually really good mm -hmm. he was he was one of those ones that uh he would you know lay out the deck and uh, say, well, what can I say? You know, you're cheating on your husband and, uh, you know, <laughs> and just turn white. <laughs> that's and fantastic. Nail it. I, think, yeah. I think that's fantastic. I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah. What was your father's background that had him um, so, so 
mas- had such a mastery over tarot. Well, uh, he was, I mean, he was born in Shanghai during the war, uh, a lot of violent things going on. Yeah. And uh, then he grew up in California. Um, he and his mother were Christian scientists, mm-hmm. but uh, open-minded, you know. It was the 50s, and they were chasing UFOs. They were oh, going wow. up to Giant Rock and waiting for the mothership to land. They were also going to Builders of the Adidam, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad had some old grade material that was so old, it said Los Angeles 42 instead of 90042. Wow. And he had his drawn-in um, Tree of Life. I think he did that one in the early 60s. Uh-huh. And uh, so, yeah, I think he studied the tarot in the context of Boda, Mm-hmm. Uh, Builders of the Adam and uh, you know he read books. He he gave me a, a book on the Rider Waite deck when I was young mm-hmm. that I used for reference. And uh, basically, we went on a road trip across the country, and I just went through the whole deck, and he told me about each card. Mm. And, wow, uh, that was that was how I got started. So you said you you don't do you not use the Rider Waite now, or you still use? Oh, it? Oh, I still use it. I'll use any deck. In fact, the last time I did a tarot reading, just as sort of uh, an experiment, it was my best friend. I've done so many tarot readings for him; it's ridiculous. Uh, but I I decided to use three decks at once. Right. Um, just to just to toy with the idea. So I used um he's he's Irish and uh, and so I was I used a Celtic deck. Uh-huh. And then I used the Hermetic Tarot, and it's got all the sigils and, you know, all the uh-huh. technical, the Hebrew and stuff. And so I had that on one extreme as, like, the the purely rational kind of... Uh, and then the, the Celtic one as just the more passionate, more to the to the root of who who he is in that regard. And then in the middle, I had the, uh, the you know, the Golden Dawn Ritual Tarot. Mm-hmm. And so I did three separate readings, and I tried to jump around a little, and actually parts of it were... Uh, were right on point, but then there was another part where it was there was a supposed to be an older woman who was you know a Gemini who was redheaded, and he was like, no, that's the, there's no one like that, and I was like, okay, well, <laughs> you never do? know who the redhead when the redheaded Gemini is going to show. Yeah, so, no, this you know. must be in the future. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's how I. Yeah, yeah. If it's not in the future, it's because you change the future. That's how. Right. I mean. <laughs> yeah, my mom used to change. She'd do a, a reading, and then she'd be like, yeah, no, I don't like this here, and she just. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Pull the card out and make it into a spell. Cool. Oh, okay. That's not so funny. I do that too. Yeah. I can't really laugh at that. That's <laughs> I do that too. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't need the devil here. Right. I can fix this. No worry. Just give me a second. You know, I'm well, wait for turn the next it right side up at I'm least. Good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. How do you feel about reversed cards? I read with uh, reversals. Okay. Yeah, so I, usually as a diminishment of the card or or a reversal of the meaning. I well, so I teach. So be, the way that I teach people who are learning reversals for the first time is mm-hmm. I use a um, mnemonic: wind, W I N D, weakened energy, inverted, negative, and then or delay. Okay. okay. And so I sort of go through. Um, it is part rational and part intuitive, but there is an analytical process that you go through with those four possibilities when a card is reversed. Mm-hmm. And then you know, at first I agree that it feels very mechanical when you go through that analysis, and it is coming from a rational perspective. But it's left brain and right brain; they both lead to your intuition. The intuition doesn't reside in the left brain or the right brain; it's mm. connected to both. Right. Right. And so for some people, they reach their intuition through the right brain. Others like me reach it through the left brain. So once you really get accustomed to using this analytical process, you you lose it and you no longer have an analytical process. It becomes very um, intuitive. 
Right. And so for me, when a card comes up, it can be weakened energy. It can be the upright card、um, weakened, or it can show that that card will manifest, but there's going to be a greater delay than anticipated.、Mm-hmm. Um, with core cards, sometimes I see it as a negative interpretation. So, for example, if it's upright, if the King of Wands is upright, and at that moment in time or in that context, the King of Wands literally represents a person. Then、mm-hmm. upright would show a more positive relationship, a positive influence over my seeker. But if it's in reverse, depending on the context, of course, I might read it as a negative influence over my seeker. Right, that makes sense. How do you read it? That's a good question. When I first learned it, I guess it, it varied from card to card. Yeah. And I, I, I was, I, I think my dad told me something similar that sometimes it's going to mean the opposite. And sometimes it's going to mean just in a lesser to a lesser degree, yeah. And、uh, you just got to use your intuition, right? And、uh, yeah, that's basically how I read it. But actually, these days I just turn them all right side up. I don't even bother with the reversals. For me, it, it varies from deck to deck. So, for example, the Hermetic Tarot. I know you referenced that earlier.、Mm-hmm. I don't read with reversals for that deck because I think just upright. I, I have enough to. to, to There's deal a lot、with. in each card. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have enough to contend with. I don't think you can even handle it. You can't read it upside down for one thing. Yeah, <laughs> like I don't even、so、know what card writing and yeah, scribbling. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love the、uh, the things people are saying about your book. A modern alchemical achievement will、Heart、become one of the、Heart. jewels in the crown of tarot literature. Was that one? Was that Tony Brooks? Uh, Anthony Lewis said、oh, it'll become one of the jewels in the crown of tarot literature. Wow! And he's are... the author of Tarot Beyond the Basics. I know, I know. I read his book. I learned on his book. So nice. Yeah. Excellent. I wonder how many jewels there are in that crown, though. A big heavy crown. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of little jewels. I went to this museum in London once. Yeah, there's some crowns. <laughs> you know these those praise things like they have to say nice things. That's true. It's, it's from publisher to publisher, and they're like, oh, well, what are they going to do? Say mean things? So, well, chicken, chicken, Tabitha Cicero, my friends back in, uh, uh, they said uh, no, no tarot enthusiasts should be without this book! Exclamation point. I was on cloud nine when I heard. It. I was like, I, I, I need to take you with a grain of salt. I know everyone says nice things. But, wow, <laughs> this is so nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was really happy when Tabitha knew who I was. <laughs> cool, cool. When I met her, she heard me talk for a few minutes, and then she said, "Are you Gwydion online?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh man!" <laughs> I was like, "Well, what all have you read?" And she's like, "I've read a lot of things you've written." <laughs> wow, that is awesome. And then she, right after that, we did this tarot, we did this tree of life thing,、uh, where she had me be hoed, and then she was netzak,、uh-huh. and and then when it got to be her turn to speak, she walks over the path of pay and starts berating me for being so stuck in my head, and that I should come out and join the rest of the world. <laughs> oh, she's awesome! Yeah. I, now I'm jealous that you got to meet her in person. I really <laughs> respect what all of her writings. I've read a lot of her writings online. Mm-hmm. It's just she's so intelligent. It just、yeah. I feel like an idiot compared to her. Oh yeah, this new book she's got where she's breaking down Westcott's or Woodman's. Is it Woodman or Westcott? Wait, she, the the the,、uh, the really elaborate Enochian stuff where you got the <laughs> colored Sigillium de Amet all of a sudden. It's really incredible work. Wow, she's, she's right on the frontier of the new stuff. You know, to be. To be dug up. It's it's interesting because there's people who are fans of Crowley. You know, are, are fond of saying that that the the pre Crowley, you know, Hermeticism and Golden Dawn is obsolete. But、mm-hmm. uh, you know, Tabitha keeps 
digging up new stuff and you know there's people working the traditional system that keep finding new layers of insight and she's going to be cited hundreds and hundreds of years from now they're going to be talking you know you're going to have people in i don't know 3015 or something like that yeah learning western yeah they're going to be citing her i'm telling you the babylonian tarot is very interesting i haven't worked with that one yet i haven't worked with it uh but i've i've seen it and i've Mm -hmm. uh you know thought about it a lot It's kind of caused me to re-examine my, you know, I mean, because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I grew up, uh, you know, hearing the Judeo-Christian perspective more than other perspectives. And so you get a certain sense of when you hear Babylonian, there's just automatically like the little prickles that go up. And uh, but then you find out later that that's the bias of, you know, the neighbors. They were they were, you know, (laughs) at a time when, you know, ask anybody back then and they're all kind of upset about their neighbors. They're like, oh, you better watch out for those guys across the hill. They're evil. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) There's this great line in Fantastic Planet. Have you seen that movie? No, I haven't. It's this psychedelic cartoon, this animated movie for adults in the 70s. They're basically humans in the future who are on another planet because we destroyed Earth. Oh, dear. And, uh, and we're the pets. And they're these really, really t- big blue people. And uh, and so there's some feral humans that are just out in the park. And then there's others that are domesticated. And, That's uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. And so so one of the domesticated ones escapes. And he brings the knowledge of, of the masters with him. And he goes to the park. And he meets... Um, he meets the people on a particular, you know, in a, in a, and and uh, then he then someone says something about the bandits of the hollow log, and uh-huh. uh, and so he says, "Who are the bandits of the hollow log?" And the guy says, "Beware of them. They are evil. They live across the park." <laughs> <laughs> well, the people across the park are—they cannot be trusted. Yeah, I have to agree with yeah. that. So you know, Babylon, you know, it it got a little bit of a bad rap in. Uh, uh-huh biblical you know symbolism really and uh, then then Crowley kind of like added to that with uh, a lot of other things and I guess Edward Kelly and 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 a scrying session at one point with a different spelling but uh but yeah so it's 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 just sort of an interesting thing to explore and then to discover the roots of western civilization there it's interesting I think I grew up sort of equally with the Judeo-Christian mythos and Mm -hmm. also with Buddhism. But it was Chinese Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And the way Mahayana Buddhism is practiced, at least in Taiwan, it's so syncretized with Taoism Mm -hmm. that you really can't talk about Buddhism without talking about Taoism. And then as the Taiwanese practice Taoism, you can't really talk about it without bringing up Buddhism. So those are sort of the... Religion. That's my. That would be my religious background that I grew up with. But I don't. I don't. I wouldn't say I subscribe to any of those religions at this point. Mm-hmm. So, sounds like Chan or or Zen. Oh, Chan. Buddha. Yeah, yeah, right. I I like to borrow from different, I guess, religions or or points of view. I mean, it seems like the idea of a religion is a particularly Western idea, mm-hmm. um, and and they we or whoever ancestors you know uh, apply it where when they look at another people they say okay well what's your religion mm-hmm. and then they kind of have to ask themselves uh what I, I don't know what's a religion and they <laughs> and they say well it's the things that you do the, where you believe something you know i mean it's like what 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 the, 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 it's so general but the teachings of buddha 
I, what's the you know uh, Carl Jung for instance? There's there's yeah. kind of the the blurry line between psychology and mythos right there. But I mean the teachings of Buddha uh, resonate more with philosophy and and psychological systems to me than than with religion. Taoism and Buddhism they begin they be both began as well they began as a philosophy, and then as they in a sense trickle down to the folk level, it becomes intertwined with right. folk religions, folk beliefs, folk practices, and then that's sort of how at least if you're trying to speak in Western vocabulary, mm-hmm. I would say that's where the religions are born from. That makes sense, and then hierarchies and things like that show up and. Right, right. So, but it, where where in the West, Buddhism, you know, largely was associated with beatniks and and people that were breaking away from uh, what their parents had taught them and the churches they grew up in. Free spirited roamers in right. San Francisco, like and when when you grew up in the Eastern tradition where things Dharma are bums, <laughs> right? And then I was like, well, what are they Buddhists? What? <laughs> so then there's the Falun Gong. It's really impressive. Oh, the Falun Gong. Yeah. What do you know about them? Just that they stand up to the the Chinese government and in yeah. the face of being killed and and worse. Um, and that it's really impressive when they're all sitting in zazen like that, and uh, that's about it. And that they do the they do they do qigong, but they've demystified it, um, t- taken the element of you know the elixir or whatever, and they've replaced that with something more rational sounding, so that technically it's not a religion anymore, mm-hmm. but uh, that but that it still looks and smells and acts like a religion, and so it's just kind of. Very uh, subversive and controversial over there. That's what I know about it. What do you know about it? <laughs> you probably know oh, a lot more. Oh gosh, than I don't even know where to start. Back in the day, they were trying to apply to the communist government for religious status, mm-hmm. okay? and uh, the government denied them religious status. So they had a huge group of them go to Tiananmen Square to peacefully protest. Mm. Okay. And, um, you know, they were there, they were peacefully, did whatever they had to do. And then the government still said, told them to send them away and said, we're not giving you religious, uh, uh, religious recognition. Mm-hmm. And so this entire group, it was thousands upon thousands of people from the countryside. Okay. Mostly uneducated people, but they left in single file, quietly, very organized without leaving even a single scrap of paper or trash behind. Mm. It was completely stark clean when they left. And that level of organization frightened the crap out of the government. And that's the reason that it really um, gained the attention that it did. It's because the government realized anybody that could be that organized and that, you know, that cohesive was definitely a group to be feared. Yeah. I saw they weren't they sitting at the White House at one point. Yeah, I think in San Francisco they're almost always outside of the embassy. Every time I've ever gone to the embassy to try to get a visa, I've seen them. <laughs> so. Are they protesting the U.S.? No, I think it's, they're usually outside the Chinese embassy. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I think it's because there's many elements of it that is very religious, and so a lot of the mainstream. Chinese culture is not accepting of right. that level of religion, I think. I mean, it was pretty straightforward with all of the dynasties. There were a couple of breaks in between, of course, the Three Kingdoms and a couple of others, but they were because there was war. So right. it wasn't, you know, there was no political thought. It was just because but then some of them were more religious than others. Right, right, yeah. So, I mean, sometimes you have, it depends on who's in, who's in charge, obviously, right? So sometimes they're more Taoist or... They claim lineage from uh, Taoist masters, and so then it becomes 
a Taoist country, and then other times becomes Buddhist. So the the whole story going back to um, Bodhidharma, uh-huh. it, it sounds kind of fantastical, and 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 um, I don't know. I mean, there's a few people that speculate that it was largely made up um, to explain the fusion of Mahayana with Taoism. Uh, producing. Would, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. So for my second book, which is The Tao of Craft, um, mm. I did a lot of, I really wanted to um, take a serious approach to craft and to uh, esoteric Taoism and Taoist magic. So I did a lot of research or scholarly research into history and things and, and uh, just the, the sort of chronology of magic over time from all the way from Neolithic China when there was shamanism, how that got incorporated into the dynasties, the Shah dynasty, and then how, you know, shamanism syncretized with Taoism by, I think it was the Zhou or Han dynasty, the Han dynasty. Okay. Zhou dynasty was still a philosophy. Anyway, so what was I going when I was reading all that? So when you read about history, it's so hard, even in even among the academic circles, real, uh, myth and actual historical fact really blend with each other. Yeah. And it's really hard to even know who when you get to, you know, the, the you know, B.C. periods, of course, like the 1600 B.C., you know, 2000 B.C. It's really hard to know who were mythical figures and who were actual historical figures. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these uh, origin stories are largely myth. Yeah, I, I um, had heard a theory that Thoth, the god, was uh, was a priest in Atlantis at one time. <laughs> it's a story that had gotten exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you always have. I mean that the that kind of a that kind of a pattern is seen throughout Chinese history, where you have. Um, you know, these fantastical mythical creatures or, or figures. And yeah, they're probably based, you know, in large part on a historic figure, but the historic figure was probably a lot less interesting. Like the eight immortals, perhaps? A lot of the eight immortals were um, historically documented as real people. Hmm. I don't know if they were immortal, but... <laughs> you know. Someone showed up and said, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> but they were definitely... Um, they were documented as real people, like for example, in the Han Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty, etc. So it's like Marie Laveau in uh, the House of Voodoo in in New yeah. Orleans has a daughter and a granddaughter, and everybody says, "No, no, that's still her." She's... <laughs> <laughs> it's a youth yeah. spell. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, whenever you have somebody who who gains a, gains quite a following, you know, they do get sort of memorialized and seven foot tall. And yeah. Yeah. Lightning exactly. Lightning flew out of his eyes. And... Right. Right. Right, right. So. <laughs> yeah, even in my own family. Yeah, it's funny because I have that too, you know, where, yeah, family history, a lot of it gets sort of, not embellished, I don't want to use that word, but you know. Yeah, it gets, exaggerated a little, it, yeah. You know, you need it. If you're telling a story, it's got to be an interesting story, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and then, yeah, the third time, the, you know, 20th time you hear the story, they say, yeah, and it was eight hours. And it's like, wasn't it three hours originally? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to walk 50 miles to school. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever um, do a tarot reading before you go into the courtroom? No comment. <laughs> Excellent. I try really hard not to talk about um, how I approach my professional life okay, and, okay. and craft or my personal beliefs only because you never know who's listening so yeah comment. i have but to I ask though just so no i can comment, find out where comment, the boundaries so. are you know right <laughs> cool well i guess by saying no comment that is a comment so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
It's like um, when people ask me if I'm a Rosicrucian, and I say, well, you know, people who say they're a Rosicrucian aren't, so uh -huh. no, and then I show them my tattoo and wink. <laughs> yes, exactly. Just like that. <laughs> Only not. No, no, nothing like that. <laughs> nothing like that. Excellent. Well, do you have any questions for me? I do. I don't, can I ask them? Yeah, sure. So I'm always, I've always been curious about the Golden Dawn. I have a very much outsider perspective, you know? Mm -hmm. So a lot, everything I read is, is just whatever is publicly available. Mm -hmm. And basically from just as much voracious reading as I can possibly do, it's really hard to, to define, it seems like. You know, there's a lot of, I don't know if there's infighting, but it just seems like there's just different groups. There's different approaches are, these days, for sure. Oh, okay, that's what it is. Yeah, there's different interpretations and different uh, personal preferences about it. And then there's a few people who are very passionate about that their way is the real way and that everyone else is, you know, to one degree or another, incorrect, um, mm -hmm. you know, because they have a lineage through so-and-so or whatever. There's So there's a lot of, I mean, it's a, it's it, a 130 years or so, uh, you know, that it, that it all got going. And so, of course, you have... You could you could even count everyone who subscribes to Thelema as a school of thought within the Golden Dawn community. Mm -hmm. um, the the people who are uh, initiated through Paul Foster Case's system, their mm -hmm. opinion about the Golden Dawn is you know different from everyone else's. But um, I I can resonate with what they're saying. They they point out that. Uh, it exalts the ego to take someone and say, okay, you are now one with Christ and you're going to sit on the throne and be the hierophant for all these people and be responsible for initiating them. And, uh, and that, that's kind of like an ego trip. And so they say, don't you find that, you know, exalts the ego? And I said, yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, in the classical Golden Dawn, there's like certain things you can say for sure. Okay. And there's a lot of certain things you can say for sure about the the way that they did things or things that are done now that resonate with a traditional practice. For example, if you're doing planetary, uh, if you're doing any kind of elemental invocation, if you're, then mm -hmm. you want to do a lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram at the end. If you're doing um, planetary work, you want to do the banishing ritual of the hexagram. So there's just like certain practices that a, a trained Golden Dawn magician will generally abide by. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a, and then there's the way that the tarot is used in the Golden Dawn, which might be of interest to you. I uh, do want to hear, please. Yeah. Um, well, if you imagine, this is kind of a fun, uh, are you familiar with Twin Peaks? No, what's Twin Peaks? Okay, don't worry about Twin Peaks. Okay, okay. just imagine if you will, and, and uh, it, it might help to close your eyes for this. Um, and I'll just do a real simple little illustration. Um, you're in a room, and uh, th this room we'll call Malkut. Okay. And uh, in the West, you have, you know, the banner of the West, and you have someone standing guard because uh, beyond, beneath that is below the tree, and, of course, that's Klipoth, and that's, that's evil. And so you have this guy at the very base of the Tree of Life protecting you. Um, and so then as you move, as you, as you progress in the grades, you pass between the pillars. And each time you pass between the pillars, you move into another part of the Tree of Life. Mm -hmm. And so the first time you pass between the pillars, you, you enter into Malkut at the base of the tree. Right. And, and then there in the east, you see three portals. And they have the Hebrew letters from the Sefer Yetzirah. So in mm -hmm. the middle, you have Tav. And on the left, you have Shin. And on the right, you have Kof. And of course, when you, when you learn a certain amount of... Uh, you, 
you prove that you're worthy and you've mastered the element of Earth to a certain degree, then you're allowed to progress. And so you go through the central portal of the Path of Tav. And then all of the symbolism of the universe card is, is exposed to the Theoricus. So the person who is of the third grade of a classical Golden Dawn system will only have learned about the universe card. And that was at the point where they renamed it Universe Card because even in Victorian England, world no longer had the same meaning that it used to mean when mm-hmm. it was the name of the tarot card. Arthur Edward Wade, of course, changed it back to world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the Golden Dawn, it was Universe. Yes. And then, uh, so anyway, basically, that's the... So you work with you work intensely with that. I wrote a ritual called S1 in 2002 that's entirely based on the symbolism of the Universe Card. And mm-hmm. a lot of people practice it. And uh, or used to, I, I'm sure a few people are still doing it. Um, and then, so basically, when you get beyond the grade of Yasod, so you pass through the pillars again after you are enter, you enter into the universe card, and then you're in Yasod, and then you spend a year, however long you spend in Yasod, in in the grade of Theoricus. To get further beyond that, you go through the path of Shin, which is in that first room you were in, but then also in that second room you're in, Yasod, you go through the one on the upper left, in the, the east, and that one's Resh, and the sun card. So you're in the fourth grade, and you've learned about three tarot cards, the universe card, uh, the judgment card, and the sun card. So basically, if, if the more like quote-unquote traditional uh, a traditional golden dawn temple is the more they'll want to cover their eyes and and put blinders on and go la 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 you know don't tell no spoilers you know don't tell me how it ends and uh and so they can gradually be initiated into and gradually have the meaning of the tarot unfolded to them in ceremony by officers who are wearing the god forms of particular egyptian gods that the founders of the golden dawn uh thought were appropriate did that help at all? <laughs> it did help. Not only did it help, but I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't help but but be reminded of some of the things I've been learning right now. So, for example, that reminds me of um, a pacing ritual mm-hmm. that's done in Taoist craft. And the pacing ritual. So, there obviously it's going to differ from tradition to from tradition to tradition. Mm-hmm. Some will follow the Big Dipper. Others will follow the Lo Shu or Luo Shu. Basically, that is the you know I don't know you know the magic square. I don't. Oh, the Luoshu Magic Square. It's based on, um, it's, I think it's from the Sha Dynasty. Yeah, it's from the Sha Dynasty, 2000 BC. Okay. And that was when a tortoise shell surfaced and it had certain right. numbers on it, one through nine. And it was a magic square with 15. And then also not only was it a magic square, but um, it, was, it, it was actually what the um, eight trigrams were founded on. Mm-hmm. And there's two there's two forms of the bakwa, but the one I'm talking about is the later trigram because that's the one that relates to metaphysical energy. The first one relates to just the universe and the natural order of things. So the metaphysical energy bakwa then formed into the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching. Mm. And so the pacing ritual that they use is going through the eight trigrams of the bakwa to basically form the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching. And so they take that philosophy and incorporate it into the pacing and the rituals of the actual, well, the ritual that they... Oh, right. Gradually unfolding it in that way as a... Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so rather, so basically what was, what's in a book, what's in a text and what's used in bibliomancy is transformed in a way into ritual and is uh, taught through the ritualized process. Mm. So that's what it kind I don't know if I can yeah. draw a fair comparison. I, oh, I think so. I think okay, that, good that, like so. between because uh, the Golden Dawn drew heavily from masonry 
And uh-huh. that that's basically goes on a lot in masonry where you have texts that are you know only communicated from mouth to ear you know and and uh William Morgan got in a lot of trouble well he got himself killed in 1860 mm-hmm. or whatever it was for threatening to or maybe he did i think he did he published a, a lot of the secrets and got himself killed and then uh the the killers got away with it and they found out the judge was a freemason and mm-hmm. so then hence the anti freemason party and then uh, a lot of things changed in this country um but that didn't happen in london uh, where the Golden Dawn happened. So it's like there's these like parallel histories of Masonry and, and uh, Western esoterica. And there, there were a whole bunch of orders going on in um, England at the time and, and in France. And so, I mean, it's sort of like it is now, but now it's more so. But I think that because information is so readily available and because a lot of us, I like to use the word esoteric nerds, um, mm-hmm. uh, have read a lot of the same authors and a lot of the same books and we're familiar with a lot of the same philosophies, there's much more of a common language, even uh-huh. increasingly between people from different cultures and backgrounds. Right. Um, so, so I think that's a great thing and it's moving toward a great thing. Tellier Desjardins, uh, who was a, you know, a Jesuit, but he was a visionary, uh, spoke about, you know, the, the ideas being shared and coming together and eventually the, the, everybody awakening, you know, uh, the, the global brain awakening, the Omega point and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. I, I, I like uh, I, I like feeling like I'm participating in the sh- in the in the sharing and dispensing and promoting of uh, of self education and the and the discovery of, of knowledge. Because well, you definitely are, definitely for sure. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, just sitting there googling something and reading a Wikipedia page is just such a great use of time. You know, I mean, as long as people are, are aware of their posture while they're doing it, you know. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, that's it's a terrible you use of your time. It. Not the uh, reliability of sources, but the posture. <laughs> that's the really important thing. Someone asked me, "What is? How do I?" You know, people want I. You know, they want me to tell them to get a piece of wood and climb a mountain and hit their head with it or whatever. But it's always the same thing. Just be aware of how you're standing. Be aware of your posture. Be aware of what you put in your body. You know, it's the same old boring shit they always told you when you were a kid. You know, get plenty of rest. <laughs> eat your vegetables. Uh, eat your vitamins, and uh, everything will be great. You know, you'll you'll, you'll really enjoy your life. You know. <laughs> that's exactly well. You know what? That's what I talk about in the second book as well. So. You know, part of the part of being a strong practitioner is to have strong chi, strong uh, personal chi energy. And you know, how do you cultivate stronger chi? I mean, it's pretty boring. You know, like yeah. you just said, eat your vegetables, wash your yeah. posture, wash your breathing, see how you're breathing, and watch your ethical conduct as well. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, and keeping keeping some of that energy in the body to 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 keep the aura illuminated and and circulating the light and all of these practices and breathing techniques and and yeah. working with the chakras and the meridians and all of that and and having a practice and being aware and and being vigilant and asking questions and yeah all of that good stuff yeah it's rather boring but it's also rather impossible yeah yeah <laughs> so it's achievable. I think it's like it's it's hidden in plain sight, you know. Yes. Yeah. People want people want a magic word that's gonna. So they, I I think what it is is you know people who are like smoking a cigarette and you know halfway done with that beer going, what can I do to gain happiness? And it's like, well, you're not gonna want to hear this. Exactly. <laughs> 
exactly. Perfect analogy. There's, there was this great story. Uh, I, I went through a period of being uh, Eastern Rite Russian Catholic, and uh-huh. uh, and the priest had this great story about. Well, he was it, it wasn't to, in in a homily or anything. It was in a personal conversation about how uh, a lot of things start out practical and mundane and then become spiritual over time. And the yeah. the example he used was in the Hagia Sophia when they were preparing the uh, the communion. They they had they were mixing bread with wine in the cup and so there were a bunch of flies in the Hagia Sophia just like there are today and uh, and so the priest had to stand there the entire time he was delivering the 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 Latin incantation for the descent of the Holy Spirit he had to like wave a, a, a napkin back and forth and then so people would ask so why why do you do that what does that mean and he'd say oh well it's to sig- signify the descent of the Holy Spirit and uh, so now you know every priest has to spend four hundred dollars for a silk embroidered napkin to wave over the <laughs> over the chalice oh, is it is it appropriate to laugh yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. But I think a lot of things start out like that, and a lot of things, you know. I was just going to say that I bet you most of the rituals that we follow in tarot comes from that as well. Like, oh, I just accidentally, you know, moved this deck or this pile over there, and now <laughs> the ritual. Well, Go I, ahead. Sorry. I, I, th- I always thought that um, in the in the Old Testament, it's forbidden to do divination. However, there is someone who who does divination, but it, rather than a, a, a sorcerer or a, I forget the actual word in, in well anyway they they call him something else. Um, he's a prophet of Yod Hevavhe, a prophet of I H V H. And so in the five part uh, tarot spread formula, it's included at the very beginning that you're identifying yourself as a prophet of Yod Hevavhe and not as an evil sorcerer. And so therefore, the uh, divination that you're doing is kosher. That's nice, <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's that's really good. I like it. Wow. Well, thank you very much for talking to me on the Esoteric Nerd podcast tonight. I had so much fun. I kind of wish it went on longer so I could ask you more questions. So I should have been interviewing you. That's, <laughs> you know so much more than I well, do. Well, if you have some time, I have some time. Yeah, sure. What, what so, else did you want to? Well, I was just curious. if this is, is this off record or on record? Either one. Oh, okay. Well, it depends on you, I guess. So, <laughs> yeah, um... I'll do the editing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, did you, did you join the Golden Dawn on your own or was that something that was part of the family? Basically, it was part of the family. Um, my dad was never an initiate of a Golden Dawn order, but he did speak highly of the Golden Dawn as a historical order. And mm-hmm. he um, advised, when, when he was teaching his students, uh, he advised staying away from Crowley books and Cro- Crowley's deck. My mom liked Crowley's deck. Uh, you know, she was naughty, you know, but, uh, but my dad was a college professor, you know, but he would take on students. Sometimes his, his students in college would become his esoteric students. And, um, so he had certain things he would teach them and certain things we remembered. And when he died, I was 15 years old and, uh, he was my only teacher of esoterica. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I immediately, as soon as I was able to like do something other than mourn. Uh, my my main motivation was I needed to find people who were knowledgeable about the occult and and learn from them and to become a student mm-hmm. of that so that I could catch up with where my dad was so that I could wow. feel like I was worthy to have his last name. Wow. And so I, I started out in uh, Gardneri and Wicca. Uh-huh. And my mom went along with me. Of course, she wanted to make sure that I, I was all right and I you know couldn't drive myself back then. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, 
So we did weekly lessons at the Druidic Craft of the Wives of America, based in Eye of the Cat, Long Beach. We, we went through the two years and graduated and, and became, uh, well, we weren't initiated into that order because they had found out that we were involved in, a, in this particular gold, traditional Golden Dawn order. We mm-hmm. um, basically, we found out through the process of learning Gardenerian Wicca that it was largely an invention of Aleister Crowley and Gerald Gardner based uh-huh. on Golden Dawn symbolism. Uh-huh. And so basically between that and we found a flyer because the order that I you know was schooled in put flyers in books. And uh, uh-huh. so we found a flyer and, and we checked it out and went to the orientation. My mom drilled the guy you know, with a bunch of questions afterward and then afterwards she came outside and she said, this will be a good place for you to continue your training. Oh, wow. And I said, okay. And uh, then we both joined and uh after after three years i had gotten fed up with the corruption and everything and so i was leaving the order and Mm -hmm. my mom was building a temple for the order in los angeles and the room that i'm sitting in right now oh wow and uh so she gave me money to move out and go do my own thing and uh, but at the same time, she, you know, I ended up becoming romantically involved with uh, a soror in the order that was hanging out with my mom a lot. Uh-huh. And uh, so then my mom died. And uh-huh. uh, so there I was. I moved back into the house I had just inherited, which had the Golden Dawn Temple in it. And wow. uh, then I, um, I just kept the classes going. And so that was uh, late 1997. And then by 2011, basically, the head of that order was a really, really, really despicable man. In the interest of not making you the devoted listener who's already heard the Lola episode listen to all those same stories again, I have cut to the end of it. You're welcome. Oh, it looks like it's the because I'm looking at the the USPTO website right now uh-huh. just because I'm because I'm a nerd. I'm <laughs> what can I say? Um, it's the trademark, actually. It seems to be owned by a Florida corporation. Yeah, that's Chick. That, that, oh, that's, uh, okay. the Cicero's. Cool. Yeah. All right. So that's good. And so basically, there's a lot of traditional, you know, little traditional Golden Dawn orders. There's a lot of little schisms. I mean, but that basically just it it has a lot to do with the hierarchical structure of the original Golden Dawn, which is part of the probably part of the problem Crowley had with it. But I mean, mm-hmm. I don't see any difference between that and you know hierarchical structures that go on in Thelemic organizations. But maybe there is. But uh, you you end up with this model it, you, when you have someone who is a cult leader type who wants to do a traditional Golden Dawn and be the chief adept Mathers style. Uh, they'll have people read the the back of uh, what you should know about the Golden Dawn, where it talks about how only the chief adept has the right to communicate with the third order, who are the divine beings who will tell you how to govern the order. And mm-hmm. uh, so that was the model that we had was was you know sure you can give advice, but we're going to do what the third order said, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, the classic cult scenario stuff, you know. But I, I my mom died when I was. You know, I had just turned 19, and I was on a lot of drugs, and and somehow by the time I was 21, I was one of the people enforcing the rules of the uh, uh-huh. of our particular cult, and so so basically, a lot of what I'm doing in present time is to, to is to try to undo the the bad karma of of mistakes uh-huh. I made earlier in life. Ah, uh, that's interesting, though. It's, it's got such rich history. 
I guess <laughs> it has history. I think part of it is that it goes on in the shadows. Uh, a lot of it, uh, you know, it's all taking place in a in someone's garage of a, of a house that nobody even knows whose name the house is in. You know, and wow. uh, and so as opposed to like a Masonic hall, at least has some kind of like legitimacy or structure to it. A church has to answer. Well, but then again, there's a lot of churches that don't seem to be answering to any you know yeah. moral yeah. anything, but. But yeah, I mean, it gets interesting when it's just people in their spare bedrooms and, and, and garages claiming to be, you know, the hierophant or claiming to be the chief adept who's going to initiate you and teach you. You know, it's a little iffy, you know, it's like the right. probably the one person you, you should be worried about is the guy who's appointed himself as the chief adept. Uh, and everybody else there, you know, like a lot of them are sincere. There, there would be people who would uh, be you know, very, very dutiful students. But then as soon uh -huh. as you put them in a position of authority, they were terrible teachers who would just abuse their authority. And so you yeah. kind of see what, you know, but that kind of comes with any kind of um, absolutely situation like that. But I think it's even worse when you have, there's like no real standard other than, you know, like if you have a situation where you have a group of three people denying someone advancement for some shady reason based on intuition or a tarot reading, that's, <laughs> that's like, creepy and weird and then if you but if you have like a like complete open door that if if you can t give us the knowledge if you know the knowledge if you can parrot it back to us then you get it you get advanced and mm -hmm. so either one of those are bad <laughs> because right, you have right. the person who will just memorize it and not go through any alchemy at all uh -huh. And just so they can rise up to the point where they have an honored in front of their name and they get a white sash across their chest and then, you know, they get put in charge of a group of three or four people and then then you find out, you know, what a what a despicable person they will always be and they, uh -huh. they, they you can't undo it, you know, and there's nothing you can do. And so then sometimes you end up with with uh sometimes you end up with like a corrupt chief adept and you end up with a good a good uh, initiate adept who then schisms and goes off to f start another order that's better. And then other times you have a good chief adept with a bad <laughs> adept initiate who wants to schism off and go start an order where they can have everybody just worship their ego. So, so it's touchy, you know, it's, it's, it's a risky situation. The golden dawn is a fascinating historical phenomenon and right. it's a, it's, it, it turns out it's also a fascinating thing to try to enact. Um, but I, I like to the reason why I, I, I uh, like to use the word esoteric nerd is because mm -hmm. it emphasizes the nerdiness. It, it makes it seem a lot more like society of creative anachronism when people are dressing up and doing traditional golden dawn initiations as opposed uh -huh. to as, as opposed to how seriously a lot of them take themselves. Uh -huh. And uh, and so the fact, for example, the lawman that I'm exposing in the picture of me um, is uh -huh. never, ever, ever under any circumstances to be exposed. And uh, uh -huh. and so so earlier today, I had an old friend of mine who was asking me why why I had exposed it. And I told him, well, they made me a chief. And in the oath, it's uh, like there's this whole long elaborate oath. And then at the end, it says, except by permission of the chiefs of the second order, I'm not allowed to show someone my Gaborah sword unless I give myself permission to. Right. <laughs> OK. But I'm gonna give <laughs> <laughs> and so then I started being a little more lax about what what I allowed to be uh, exposed or, you know, um, when I would teach my classes here at the house. So for so it's become natural for me to wear my Rosecross Laman on the outside. 
but you know, I also wear a kimono. So I mean, I'm not really doing traditional golden dawn anymore. Very traditional golden dawn, yeah. right there. I'm, I'm chanting the Hanya Shingyo, the Heart of Great Wisdom Sutra, and that's uh, historical. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, doing um, you know uh, chakra, you know Tibetan chants with the chakras and stuff like that. I do believe that was in book T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In a footnote. One of those other ones, yeah. Right, exactly. That's fun. That's awesome, though. I like how you're able to find truth where you find it and incorporate it into your practice. So that's really the testament of an open mind. Well, thank you very much. So, yeah. Yeah, I found the limits. I found the Golden Dawn had limits in the way that um, calculus has limits. Like, mm-hmm. it, it'll allow you to use your rational mind to kind of wrap your mind around a circle, sort of. But mm-hmm. um, there's still the actual circle out there somewhere. And, and similarly, like, in the end, when you, get, when you go through all the grades of the Golden Dawn, the thing that you never get it, that Crowley's orders never get into, is called the Vault of the Adepti. And it's based mm-hmm. on the tomb of Christian Rosencruz from mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the Secret Teachings of All Ages. And um, he, well, basically, the, the, the Golden Dawn reinterpretation of the Rosicrucian vault is a very colorful thing. It's, um, it has seven walls. And the, so the ceiling, of course, is uh, heptagonal shape. And so is the floor. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, the uh, walls are eight feet high and five feet wide. And each of them has uh, 40 squares. And so you walk in through the Venus door, which is in the west. And, um, and the, for example, if you turn around and look at the Venus door, you'll have the 40 squares there with a little bit of a green tint and a little mm-hmm. bit of like Venusian energy. And the 40 squares include the 10 sephirot, the three alchemical principles, the four carobs, the 12 signs of the zodiac, including the redundancy of there being four carobs uh, included as the four, 12 signs of the zodiac as well as just the four carobs. Um, and then, uh, what else, the uh, spirit symbol up at the top above Keter. And so, so ev- basically every planetary wall has every force in the universe within it. And so mm-hmm. when you stand inside the vault, you're standing at the center in the, in the place of Christ. And above mm-hmm. you is the 12 petals of the symbol that I'm wearing on my chest in the picture um, unfolding, which are the, the Hebrew letters uh, of the, as explained in the Sefer Yetzirah. And of course, we know they correspond to the tarot. They also have their colors, which correspond to the heavens of Isaiah of the tarot. So, for example, um, Aleph, Mem, and Shin, Aleph is yellow for air, and Mem is blue for water, and Shin is red for fire. Um, And then He is red for Aries, Vav is red-orange for Taurus, and, you know, so on. Um, So They also correlate with sound, too. I remember reading, right? It was basically the, the, um, with music, in fact, the scale. Yeah, C is red, and and C-sharp is red-orange, and so on. It's fascinating to me. I had a student who was blind, and oh. uh, he wasn't quite blind from birth, but he became blind when he was a year old, and he wasn't sure if he remembered seeing or not, and yeah. he wasn't sure if he saw in his dreams. And um, so I was teaching a class called the Rainbow Banana Band Sphere, and mm-hmm. uh, it was about how you can visualize the uh, zodiacals in the sky based on the colors of the rainbow 
and the idea of them being these banana-shaped bands that are exactly 12 of them. And so you start by visualizing a clock on a southern wall. You take any zodiacal chart and hold it up in front of your face while you face south, and then you continue all the lines out around you in a sphere and color it in, and then you start to get a natural sense of where the planets are and where the zodiacals are. And naturally, he was blind, so it didn't do him a lot of good to, say, visualize the color red in a banana shape. So he got everything about the concept. He got, he understood except for when I said visualize the color red, visualize the color red orange. He couldn't do that. And so, uh -huh. but he's a musician. And so wow. I told him, you know, instead of visualizing the color red, listen to the sound of C. And he just hummed it, you know. And he was like, okay, okay. So that sound is coming from that banana-shaped band. And then, so I got, okay, now C sharp. And then he was like, okay, but I'm confused about what's how, what happens when you rap all the way around. How do you get from from uh, from the uh, to the oh, you know? And and, uh, and I said, well, with light, when purple gets to red, it, it's like with the octave, if it were to come around to the same note instead of the next note higher. And then he says, oh, and he has this yeah. incredible realization. And to this day, I wonder what the heck that realization was. <laughs> you know, it all became perfectly clear to him and he understood purple and its relationship to red and orange. And, and suddenly it all made sense in terms of sound. And uh, so he was always really grateful for that. But um, that's amazing. I love that story. I know. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, he passed away sadly um, from the oh. from the same cancer that took his sight. Uh, his name was Frater Love, uh, L O oh. V. It stood for Light Conquers All. Yeah, a lot of people loved and miss Frater Love. There was a time when in August we'd have uh, you know four magicians all playing guitar together, and. Uh, and he did a perfect impression of anybody, you know. I think because, you know, when you don't have one sense, your other senses become more uh, refined. And maybe his sense of sound was more refined. So he did a perfect Christopher Walken mm -hmm. and uh, a perfect Jimmy Page. You know, he could... Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I love these stories. Thank you so oh, much yeah, for sharing. Absolutely. Of course. Anytime. So you're, lo you're located in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. Highland Park. Oh. Oh, very nice. Well, next time I'm there for a case or something, we should definitely meet up. Definitely. That'll be fun. Yeah, and I, I teach yoga at Crunch Fitness, and I drive Uber. So if you need <laughs> a ride from the airport or anything, you know, hit me up. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Frater. I, I just really, this was one of the cooler interviews. I get to learn during the interview. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad that you came on here. And, and it was very nice to meet you. And I look forward to reading your books. I'm flattered that you had me on. I'm very, I feel like I'm uh, not up to the caliber that Esoteric Nerd is usually at. So <laughs> I freak you know, forgive me to your well, I'm, uh, listeners. I'm not recognized. I didn't even know there was an official U.S. tarot anything. <laughs> and I, I, so I, I was impressed when I saw all your credentials. And uh, you know. <laughs> oh, the credentials! No, 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 no. That's, please don't. <laughs> Is there a test? Yeah, there was. It was for shits. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I found. I googled it. I came. I've been. I've been studying tarot for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Then I came across the Tarot Certification Board of America. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's, I, wow, right? Like, it just, what, what do you say to that besides, there's certification for tarot. And I'm like, 
you know what? I, I need to do that. Yeah. I just felt like so you can have it, the diploma up next to your law degree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I needed to be a tarot master. That was just the coolest thing in the world to me. And so, yeah, I just went for it. And then, you know, once the book comes out, of course, the publishers who are, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, uh, informed that deeply in tarot. So they're just like, oh, that sounds so cool. They make it like one of the selling points. Oh, I see. Because, you know, it's just, it's, it's, you're trying to sell a book. You sound more credible when you're certified. Right. But anyone who knows anything about tarot looks at that and just like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So, yeah. Good to know. <clears throat> Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll give you a reading when you come down here. <laughs> oh, right. I'll, we'll, we'll give each I'll other give you readings. A reading too. <laughs> I have a, a quite an extensive collection of decks. <laughs> oh, cool. I I mix it with I Ching, and so I like to do I Ching readings. I like to kind of mix and match nice. divinatory systems. So we'll have a lot of fun. Are you familiar with geomancy? What kind? Um, I didn't know there was more than one kind. Uh, the, there's something called Arabic geomancy, which. Uh, only exists, as far as I know, in the Order of the Golden Dawn and in schools that have been derived from it. Um, oh, it, that one I'm not it, it involves 16 um, figures uh, made of single and double points arranged in four lines. And oh, no. names such as Puer and Puella. And I've delivered uh-huh. this speech many a time. Um, uh-huh. And we changed it. Eventually, we changed it just so we weren't going to be walking anachronisms anymore. At, mm-hmm. um, where we show them... The, uh, the Hebrew letters as attributed to the major arcana of the tarot. And then we cool. get really serious and heavy with them and in ceremony with the candles and everything and let them know that they must never reveal that there is any connection between the Hebrew letters and the major arcana of the tarot because well, that is a closely guarded secret that has never been told to the never, never been told to the never. unwashed masses. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. Oh my God. And we kept doing it. We kept saying it as That's if awful. that were the case. And so yeah, things that people were able to talk about before suddenly they were no longer able to talk about you know? <laughs> and so they go through the order and gradually they'd have to shut up about things that they were able oh. to talk about before thanks <laughs> to Crowley <laughs> oh but the geomancy to get back to the oh, earlier yeah. point um, I I practice well. It's so Chinese geomancy oh. is based on certain practice from the Loshu Magic Square, which was from the Sha Dynasty. That's about uh, two thousand one thousand BC, mm-hmm. and then that eventually, you know, through the I Ching and all that, that eventually formed the first schools of Feng Shui. And then Feng Shui has different schools and different factions, so it's really hard to just say Feng Shui. Mm-hmm. Depending on which tradition of Feng Shui you're practicing, it's different. But the earliest versions is based on the um, Neolithic geomancy. So that I'm somewhat familiar with. Like the Loshu Square, they the legend has it that the Loshu Square was what the, uh, who was it? I think, which emperor? One of the shamanic kings, the early shamanic kings, used it to save China from the early floods. Interesting. So that's the geomancy I'm okay, familiar so with. Okay, so it's I, like I proto I Ching? I wouldn't say it's necessarily related to the I Ching. It's more like they're all based on the same ontological, ontological principles. Okay. And it is going to be based on the qi, the yin and the yang, the you know five phases, all of these things. And so they are interconnected. Right. That's the best I can say. They're interconnected. I'm fascinated by the differences and similarities between the five elements in the West and the five elements in the Chinese system. Mm-hmm. There's the, you know, uh, earth, air, fire, water, spirit. And then there's mm-hmm. uh, metal, wood, uh, wind or air, uh, It's a uh, 
<laughs> yeah, there's fire, wood, metal, water, and earth. Right. Um, so in, I, I don't know if there can be a direct correlation between the five elements in the West, because in, in, in the Western, my understanding of at least the four elements, fire, water, air, and earth, mm-hmm. is that fire and air have act, they're, they're considered more, um, active mm-hmm. or would say yang, yang, right? Right. And then they would say water and earth are passive. So that would probably attribute, attribute to yin. And so those would be sort of the active versus the binary essences of the four elements. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Sounds no? good to me. Oh, it sounds good to me. <laughs> so in the, well, in the Wuxing, in the five phases, mm-hmm. every one of the elements have both yin and yang. Okay. And so one wouldn't be yin, one wouldn't be yang. Right. They have both. And so I, and, and also they're not really elements. They describe the five, act, their phases, their active phases. It's basically they describe five actions the five actions that create the eight elements and the, the eight trigrams, the bakwa, those do have passive and active. And I actually feel like they correlate more to the four elements, the eight trigrams, than the five phases. Okay. So I, that's how I, I see so it. So each on, of the five is a duality in itself. Exactly. It's a duality. Whereas I, I feel like when the West explains um, the four or five elements, they tend to see it as having one specific attribute as either active or passive. In traditional Golden Dawn, uh, they would put it, you know, in, in relationship to the rose, which is derived from the Sefer Yetzirah, um, mm-hmm. the 12 single letters each have mm-hmm. one nature, and that corresponds to the, to the zodiac. Mm-hmm. The um, the seven double letters each have a dual nature, so that's where the duality comes in. Is in the seven pointed star of the mm-hmm. seven ancient planets, and they mm-hmm. describe them as peace and war, love and hate, uh, grace and indignity, or grade and indignity. Uh, there's a debate about whether or not that's a typo or just an arcane <laughs> use of the word grade. Um, uh-huh. And uh, fertility and solitude, power and servitude. Those are the seven planets. And then the elements, there's three, air, the water, and the fire. Oh, right, And when right. you combine them all, you get earth. Uh-huh. But at the very, very center of the whole rose is a tiny little white dot at the center of a little rose cross symbol, and then that's where the spirit would come in. And so, so then you have, um, you know, the five elements basically drawn from that idea of the three elements with the spirit. Mm-hmm. Ah, I see. That's interesting. The three reminds me of the Taoist Trinitarian principle of heaven, earth, and man, maybe? I don't know. Heaven, earth, and what? Heaven, earth, and man. Oh, okay. So That makes sense. In the uh, the concept of the Vault of the Adepti, you have the heaven above, it's a white ceiling with the rose, and then you have mm-hmm. hell beneath, uh, it's painted black with red serpents, and you're you're standing on a rose that's protecting you. And uh, and but then you're the one in the middle, and all those different colored, the 280 different squares that surrounds you is the uh, you know the soul in action, the 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 sun that can express itself in all these many rays, and all the different uh, for, cosmic uh, forces that we have access to as a, a living human in present time, standing be, vibrating between the light above and the darkness below. That's interesting because the Chinese word for hell or the underworld. Um, is derived from the word earth. I think earth gets a bad rap sometimes. 
<laughs> right. Because then in Wicca, you 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 extend roots into the ground, and you, I think that that's one one of the cathartic things I think for people who come from a Christian background and then they become Wiccan, is they grow up thinking hell is beneath their feet, you know, and then someone tells them about the magma, and that just confirms that hell's beneath their feet, you know, and right. then uh, but then you get into Wicca, and the first thing you do is is you get in a circle and everybody extends you know roots into the ground and they go through the mantle and all the way into the center of the earth and then pull up the energy from the center of the earth and that's the energy that we use to to build a cone of power to the moon and then tap into the energy of the moon and bring it down to the earth and it's just this incredibly powerful stuff that just bypasses all that those silly ideas about hell oh that's a lot like grounding meditation yeah a grounding meditation in, in an eastern yeah, from Eastern, um, the grounding meditation to sort of um, center your, your chi energy as you imagine roots going down from your feet and uh, extending really deep down into the earth. That might be where they got it. If you didn't preface that with Wicca, I would have thought you were talking about something <laughs> entirely different. <laughs> they were drawing from a lot of bro- sources. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and something like that you can kind of bring in, you know, it seems to transcend culture to right. extend roots. I agree with that. Yeah. Definitely. I think there's something intuitive about that and so that's why it transcends culture. We all tap into that that um idea of oneness. So when I'm uh leading yoga classes and doing the shavasana at the end and having them relax and you know doing sort of a hypnotic thing, you know, I I I try to find the place where I can speak universally to people who are you know, completely rational. Uh, on mm-hmm. one hand, people who are totally fruity on the other. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the sense of nice. being, uh, being, you know, wide-eyed New Agers or something. And so, uh-huh. so you know, talking about oxytocin, you know, as opposed to vi- good vibes, <laughs> you know? Talking about, you know, right. if you bring your hands together at your sternum and you gently press them there and relax your shoulders and you smile and then you think about the people that you love then that generates oxytocin, which is a healing uh-huh. property. So you want to do that a lot. You know, basically telling them that right, as a, right. you know, as a <laughs> very rational teacher, like not as a new ager. And that's more acceptable, of course. Yeah, you know? so they can go, oh, I guess maybe I should do that then, you know. Right. And then the new agers are over there going, ah, oh, he's found a way to talk to those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. That's really good yeah. that you have one foot in each world. Yeah. So thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. And we'll, uh, we'll t- hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Perfect. Thank you so much. We'll have you on uh, definitely before when your next book comes out to let people know. Oh, definitely. That would be great. Excellent. All right. You take care. You too. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Benabel. I'm looking forward to the next time we speak. Thank you to Robert Slap for providing the eternal ohm. Thank you to the fifth dimension for the track The Age of Aquarius, recorded in 1969. Thank you to the monks at Jo Fuku Inn Temple on Mount Koyasan that you're listening to right now. Thank you to identical twins Camille and Kennerly for the lovely harp transitions. Thank you to you the Aquarian esoteric nerd listening to this podcast. Live long and prosper.